For the last several times that I've spoken on a Wednesday night, we've been looking into the book of Job. And I'm thinking, honestly, it may take us more than a year for me to finish the book of Job, but that's fine with me because I am thoroughly enjoying this. I just wanted to remind you, give you a quick summary of what we did the first two nights. The first time that we looked at Job back in January, um, we introduced Job and we saw that there were four traits or four qualities that identified Job. Not only identified him to his peers, to his culture, to his society, but also got God's attention and obviously got Satan's attention as well. He is, we are told from the book of Job that he is blameless. The Hebrew word is ton, and it means that he is whole, he is complete. This term is only used 13 times in all of the Old Testament, and seven times that this word blameless, seven of the 13 times that this word blameless is found in the Old Testament, it's used in reference to Job. So we see that Job is blameless. He is upright. He's yashar. That means he is straight. There's no twist and there's no turns in Job. He is as he appears to be. Wow, what a character trait to have. He is Yahweh. He is a man who fears God. This means he has, he has a great deal of reverence, moral reverence for God. I think if I could identify any one thing in the 21st century that is blatantly missing, it is a healthy fear of God. And Job was a man who feared God. He reverenced God. I see people doing things and I hear people saying things that claim to be Christian. And I would not do those things simply because I fear God. And I would not say those things simply because I fear God. And he soars. He turns away from evil. This means that when he sees something that's not right, that's not pleasing to the Lord, that's morally compromised, he does an about face. And that's what it means. He, he does, when he sees evil, when he sees that which is not right, he does an about face. So we're given these four quality characteristics of Job. Then we're told he has seven sons and three daughters. He has massive amounts of cattle and livestock. And this man has more than just sons and daughters. He watches over his children. We see that he is... Um, Whenever they go and they eat dinner at, at one of the brothers' houses, that Job makes sacrifices on behalf of each of his children just in case they inadvertently sinned and offended God. So he is watching over his children. Um, he's involved and he's responsible. He has it all. He has faith, he has finances, and he has family. I mean, when you've got faith, finances, and family, and health, I can throw health in there. I mean, what else could any person ask for? So the scene changes from, that's Job 1, 1 through 5. The scene changes in verse 6. And after seeing this beautiful, pristine picture of Job and his family with all of his wealth and all of his... Um, all of the honor he has from the people around him, the scene changes, and then there's Satan. And he's presenting himself with the sons of God... And we find that God, not Satan, God says, have you considered my servant Job? Almost, when I read this, I can't help but thinking it sure sounds like God's baiting the enemy. Have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, if you'll let me take all the things that you've given to him, he'll curse you. Satan is, in fact, saying the only reason Job worships you, the only reason Job is a man of faith, is because of what he possesses. He has a fat bank account. He has great kids. He has lots of honor and reverence and respect in the community, and, and he has his health. If you'll let me touch those things and take them from you, or take them from him, he will curse you. So you guys know the story. One right after another, he loses everything. And Job's response is that he arose... Now, the reason he had to arise, can you just imagine you're told you've lost all of your wealth, all of your children have died, everything that you've ever had, all your crops, all your cattle, all your children, they're gone. That's enough to knock you to the ground. I've seen people receive unpleasant news, absolutely horrifying news, and I've seen people fall to the ground when they hear it because it sucks the life and the breath right out of them. So I think when Job heard one report after another of what he had lost. I think it took the breath and the strength out of him and he fell 
to the ground because it says very clearly that he arose. You don't arise if you're not, if you're not down. He got up. This, I think, is a key point because whenever we find ourselves with a life knocked out of us, the only thing that we can do to move forward is to get up. And sometimes that's the hardest thing for us to do, but it is always the best thing for us to do. I always remember Hagar sitting in the desert, waiting to die, waiting for her son to die. She had no bread, she had no water, she had no way of getting those things. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and tells her to get up. And when she gets up, her eyes are opened and she's able to see the provision of the Lord. Not only is this, not only is this idea used with Hagar, it's used over and over throughout the Old Testament that whenever a person is so overcome with grief, so overcome with pain, so overcome with shock, Joshua is shocked and, and knocked to the ground when the children of Israel lose a battle. And God appears to him and what's the first thing God says to him? Get up. So getting up, as, as horrible as that may sound, to tell, to tell yourself, self, you've got to get up and strengthen yourself in the Lord. Oftentimes that can be the best thing for us to do because when we get up, then our eyes are open and we can begin to see the provision of the Lord. He got up, he tore his robe. And by tearing his robe, that is a physical way in ancient Hebrew belief, that is, that is a physical, tangible way to say, I have lost everything and I am grieving. He shaved his head. That's an indication of his humility. And then he fell to the ground. But this time he did not fall to the ground with grief and pain and shock. Then he fell to the ground so that he could worship. And he worshiped the Lord. If you fall to the ground because you've let grief knock you there, if you fall to the ground because you've allowed your losses to push you down, then you need to get up. Because the only time that we need to be down is when we are humbling ourselves before the Lord and when we are worshiping Him. And He worshiped the Lord. And this is what He said. Naked, I came into the world, and naked, I will leave. He is saying, when I came into this world, I had nothing. And when I leave this world... I will leave with nothing. All the riches, all the wealth, all the possession, all the relationships, I came into the world without those things, and when I leave, I will leave without them as well. And then he states this incredible statement, the Lord gives. And you know, when the Lord gives, we bless his name. When, when he gives us that which our heart longs for, we bless his name. When there's money to pay the bills, we bless his name. When there's a job that's beyond anything we could have ever dreamed or desired, we bless his name. When everything goes our way, we bless his name. But Job doesn't stop there. He says, the Lord gives, and I bless his name. The Lord takes away, and I will still bless his name. Job's making a profound theological statement here. He's saying that God's worthiness is not dependent on what we do or do not have. That God's glory and His magnificent, His magnificence is not dependent on what we do or do not have. Whether we are having a good day or whether we are having a bad day, He is always worthy of worship. I heard someone, um, I believe, say to our pastor emeritus one time, I don't worship because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And the response of our pastor emeritus was this. It's impossible to be a hypocrite in worship because he is always worthy of worship. And that, that just really stuck in my heart. He is always worthy of our worship. Whether our day is good, whether our day is a disaster, whether we get what we want, whether we lose everything that we have, he is always worthy of our worship. And there's something about us worshiping the Lord doesn't change him, but it changes us. It changes our perspective. It changes our mood. It changes the way that we approach life. Job lost a great deal that day, but he didn't lose everything. The man kept his faith, and he kept his integrity. Now, you would think, that's enough, man. That, that's enough. Let, let poor Job go. That, don't, don't do this again. But it's almost like the curtain closes on Job, and the curtain opens again to heaven.
And the same thing's going on again. The sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord. And Satan shows up. And God says, well, what do you think about my servant Job now? I'll let you take everything from him. And he still didn't curse me, blessed me instead. And then the enemy says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, basically, let me touch his flesh. Let me touch him in his body and he will curse you. And the Lord gave him permission. I think this is so important because we need to remember that God is sovereign. And even if things touch our lives that are unpleasant and we don't like them, we still need to remember that God is still in control. He is still on his throne. And even though maybe he didn't design those things intentionally himself, when things come our way, we have to know and be secure in the reality that nothing touches our lives without God's knowledge of it. So he knew it was going to sleet and snow tonight or whatever it's doing out there. He, he knew all of these things, and he already went before us and made a way. In the recent years, last 20 years, there's been a real theological challenge with regard to the sovereignty of God. There's been this theological proposition that's been presented in the academic world um, that says that God purposely limits his sovereignty so that he can be as surprised by the events of life as we are. And it's called open theism. And believe it or not, the places where it's gaining the most popularity are within charismatic Pentecostal circles. And that's, that's kind of shocking to me. But open theism says that God, God has purposely, intentionally limited his sovereignty so that he is as surprised as we are so we can join in relationship and resolve these issues together. I say balderdash. Because the truth of the matter is, God is sovereign. He knows everything. Before I was formed in my mother's womb, he knew me. And he had all the days of my life counted and ordained. I find great strength knowing that there isn't anything that I can go through that God hasn't already known all about and prepared and equipped me to not only survive it, but to overcome it. My, God knew that my dad was going to die 14 years ago. God knew that my mom was going to be in a nursing home with Alzheimer's. God knew those things, and I am strengthened in the reality that he knew those things and prepared and equipped me with everything that I needed, not only to walk through it, to be, but to be an overcomer in the midst of it. And my God is a sovereign God, and I can trust tomorrow to him. And next year and the next decade, I can trust him because I know that there's no past, present, or future that God is, God is all of those things. He is the God of the past, he is the God of the present, and he is the God of the future because God is not in time, time's in him. And I think Job understood the sovereignty of God. And that's one of the reasons why he never cursed God. But Job is having a terrible go of it. Not only has he lost his children, lost his crops, lost his cattle, now he is struck with sores from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. It's almost verbatim what we find in the, last, in the last setting. It's generally believed that the book of Job was written to combat a popular theology. That, and that, that theology is just as popular today as it was back in the day of Job. And the theology is this. If you're suffering, it's because you've sinned. If bad things are happening to you, it's because you have sinned. Now, there is some truth to that, but you can't take that statement and impose it on everyone who's suffering. Job has done nothing wrong. He's a good man who walks in righteousness before the Lord, and yet he is suffering. In verse 9, when he's lost everything, he's sitting on an ash heap, and his wife comes along and tells him to curse God and die. His wife has been painted by theologians and historians as somewhat of a villain. How could she do that to poor old Job? I actually have a desire to write an academic paper and redeem Job's wife. Because while I don't agree with what she said to him, I can understand why she said it to him. The only thing worse than suffering yourself is having to watch someone that you love suffer. And to wonder why this goes on day after day year after year sometimes, and you see them suffering with no resolve and no hope of their pain and their suffering to ever be resolved. And honestly, you do ask yourself, Lord, why in your mercy will you not call this son or this daughter into your presence? 
and yet they continue on. Job's wife, I think she had seen her husband suffer to such an extent that she was willing to say or do anything to end that for him. This is not a cause for euthanasia. She is not saying you end your life. She is just simply saying, if you curse God, I know, I believe that God is so powerful and God is so mighty that if you curse him, it will end this and you can, you can get out of this mess. And Job said, you, he didn't call her a foolish woman. He says, you are acting as one of the foolish women. So even Job's response to his wife is gentle because Job understands that she's been through a lot. I know um, I haven't had a lot of experience being a caregiver, but in my limited experience, there's a suffering that caregivers go through when they are caring for someone that's hurting that oftentimes goes unaddressed because our focus is so much on the person who is actually doing the physical suffering that we fail to realize that the people who are loving and the people who are caring for them and the people that are losing them a little bit at a time, that they too are suffering and their suffering is just as real and just as valid. So the next time you go and visit someone who's terminal or someone who's suffering a great deal, remember to reach out and speak a word of kindness to that person that takes care of them every day and loves them and walks alongside of them. Even though Job has gone through all of this, he's lost everything and everything's falling apart. It says that even, we, we know that Job is blameless. We know that he fears God. We know that he is upright. We know that he is a righteous man. We know all of those things. But there's another characteristic that's added to Job's list of character attributes after he's gone through all this. It says that he did not lose his integrity. And that word integrity means he did not lose his ability to hold it together. That even in the midst of everything falling apart around him, even his own wife saying, curse God and die, Job did not lose it. Thank God. I mean, there have been times when I think I'm, I'm about to lose it, and just completely come unglued and come undone. And yet the Lord holds me together. Holding it together when everything falls apart is an attribute of a person whose trust and whose strength is in the Lord. Because even what limited experience I have, when grief and when suffering comes to your life or to the life of someone that you love, you can't hold it together by yourself. It's not possible. You need the strength that comes from the Lord himself. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, David is on the run from Saul and has been for a very long time. He's had two opportunities to kill Saul, and every opportunity he says, I will not lay my hand against God's anointed. And he backs off. But David's been on the run for more than a decade. He's lost a lot too. He's lost his wife. He's lost his position. He's lost any place to call home. And for 14 years, he's been wandering in the wilderness of Engedi. And now the Philistines are going to battle against the Israelites. And David's been working with the Philistines as an armor bearer. And he's about to go out to battle. He is so desperate and has so lost his compass of what is right and what is real, that he is about to go out to battle against his own people. And he meets up with the, with the kings of the Philistines, and one of them says, we don't want David going with us, because David's going to get out there, and he's going to see his friends and his family and his countrymen, and he's going to turn on us, and he will be a greater, he will, he will not be an asset to us. And he's going to be a liability, and we need, to leave, we need to leave David behind. So now David's been rejected by his own people, and now he's rejected by the Philistines. He is about as low as you can go. And he has even said, surely one day Saul will kill me. So in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David goes back to his camp at Ziklag with his mighty men, only to find that another people group has come in, raided his camp, stolen everything, and taken their women and their children as prisoners. And the men, these mighty men of David, David's not the only one suffering. These guys are suffering too. And these guys think to themselves, we're going to stone David. Because surely if we stone David, he's the reason we're in this mess. Have you ever noticed when everything falls apart, somebody always looks for someone else to blame? And usually if it's in a church, usually you want to blame the pastor. And 
It's just sometimes things happen and it's really no one's fault. But these, these guys wanted to kill David. They wanted to stone him. And these are the guys that were willing to die for David. Now they're wanting to kill him. So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, But David held himself together in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't look for another person to give him a word of affirmation. He didn't look for someone else to say, David, you know, this is just a moment. It's going to be over soon. David went to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He pulled himself together in the strength of the Lord. If you feel like you are falling apart, if you feel like your world is coming unglued, just remember another person can't pull you back together, but the Lord can. And he can not only pull you together, he can hold you together through the fiercest storm you can imagine. In Psalm 31, verse 24, hold it together and let your heart take courage, all of you who hope in the Lord. And then in Proverbs 29, verse 18, that's a familiar verse of scripture. It says, the people who have no vision will perish. That word perish is the opposite of hold it together. It means the people who have no vision They just come unglued. They come undone. They can't hold it together anymore. We need to be a people of vision. We need to be a people that can see beyond the moment that we're living in and see what God's going to do. If if a mom couldn't see beyond the diaper-changing stage, she might pull her hair out or someone else's hair out. But because you know that there's going to be an end to this, because you know that at some point this child is going to be able to do things for themselves, you know that you're not going to always be changing diapers. You're not going to always be in the place where you are right now. When I was in grad school writing my dissertation, If I had not had hope that there was coming a day when the dissertation would be finished, I don't think I could have done it. But I had hope, I had vision that there was coming an end to this. Anyone who's ever accomplished anything in the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of God, there's always had to be that hope there, that vision that at some point we are going to get past this and there's something else. Let's face it, if we didn't have hope, that our marriage was going to get beyond some of the moments that we've experienced, we'd all be divorced. But it's that hope. We are going to get through this. We are going to fight it out, work it out. God's going to hold us together. And I've got a vision that we are not going to always be where we are right now. And that's so, that is so true in so many different areas of our life. If we didn't have hope that our teenagers would get out of whatever it is that they get into, we would kill them while they're teenagers. That brings us to where we are tonight. Job chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 26. And I'm going to read this for you. The poetry is stunning. And when they, referring to Job's friends, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Job chapter 2, verse 11, verse 12. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and, that, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let not rejoicing among the days of the year Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day, who are are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? 
For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from trouble and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and groanings are poured out like water, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The poetry is beautiful, but the pain is real. Let's look at Job's friends. We're given the names of three of them. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We're going to look more closely at these friends in the next few times that I share with you on a Wednesday night. But these three friends come from a long distance off. If you look at all the different locations that they came from, it seems to indicate that it took them at least a month to get to where Job was. So that tells you two things. Well, actually three. It tells you, number one, that Job's suffering was so great and the things that happened to him was so catastrophic that news of what had happened to this man spread a hundred miles away or more. It tells you, number two, that Job had so much influence, so much respect, and so much impact on people's lives that there were at least three men who were willing to leave everything and travel for a month to come to where he was. That's huge. And number three, it tells you that Job's pain was real. And that it had been going on for more than just a minute. When we read it in scripture, it almost seems like it all happens in an hour. And it's all over in an hour. But we're looking at a man who has gone through weeks, months, and maybe even more with this kind of suffering. With no relief and no word from God. There seems to be complete silence from heaven. And I tell you, sometimes that which is worse than the suffering is the silence of God. When he told Abraham, take up your son, your only son Isaac, and take him three days' journey to a place that I'll show you. And there, I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. Three days, Abraham had to walk in silence. I would have taken one step. Okay, God, I need a confirmation. All right, God, I'll take a, I need a confirmation. But not Abraham. He got up early the next morning and went straight, even in silence. I think sometimes when God is silent becomes the truest tale of what's really lurking in our hearts. When God doesn't speak to us, when he doesn't give us that little urge or that inner nudge, and there seems to be quiet on the, on the front of heaven, that the true contents of our heart get exposed. But God has been silent where Job's concerned, and his suffering has gone on for more than just a day or two. It's gone on for months. His friends come to do two things. They come to grieve with him. Now, in our culture, this is not so apropos. When we go and someone's grieving, we tend to sit back with enough of a distance to let them grieve, but we don't enter into their grieving with them. But that word grieve means to rock back and forth. And that is the Jewish posture from from even the most ancient days when they're grieving they just begin to rock back and forth and if you go to the western wall in Jerusalem you'll see the people rocking back and forth as they make their prayers to the Lord because of their suffering and because of so many different things that are happening to them and have happened to them as a people these friends went to grieve with him they didn't they didn't go to watch him grieve they went to grieve with him they cried with him now Two of the most significant men in my life, one is my husband, Stuart Williams, and the other one is my adopted dad, Vic Bartlow. More than anyone else that I've ever met, my husband, Stuart, and Vic, they know how to grieve with people who are grieving. My husband, as a medical doctor, 
when he goes to a patient and that patient's hurting, my husband will sit down and cry with them. Vic doesn't cry, so. <laughs> Vic will do the same. When someone's hurting or grieving, honestly, they want my husband or they want Vic to go and minister to them. They don't ask me to come. I'm, I'm seriously, because I, I really, I don't know what to do. But to be a, there are, there's almost a gift when a, people, a person can come and can grieve with you. They don't take away from your grieving, but it's almost like they bear the burden of your emotional pain for just a moment and give you a breath. And that's what these men are doing. They are grieving with Job. They are helping him to carry that burden of his own emotional and physical pain and spiritual pain. And they're grieving with him. They're not there just for the party. They're not there just when Job's making money and having a big festival. They are there with him on the worst time of his life and they are grieving with him. They are entering into that moment with him. They came to grieve with him and they come to comfort him. How do you comfort someone who's lost everything? I mean, let you in on a little secret. You don't give them advice. The last thing you need to do for someone that's grieving and has experienced a great loss is to begin to try to explain to them why they're experiencing the grief and the loss, even if they say why. The best thing that you can do is be honest with them. I do not know the answers, but I do know that the Lord is your shepherd and he can comfort you and he can do for you what I cannot it is always good and it is always right to turn people toward the Lord. We don't have to know the answers because we know the answer. And he's the answer. Whatever we're going through, whatever someone else is going through, he is the answer. But his friends came to grieve with him and they came to comfort him. For seven days, I can hardly stay still for 20 minutes. But for seven days... These men stayed with him, and they didn't say a word. Now, what's not so obvious to us is that in ancient Hebrew tradition, as well as modern Jewish rabbinic tradition, seven days is the period to mourn someone's death. When they saw Job from afar off and they did not recognize him, that's huge. Here's a man that they knew well enough. Do we need to, were you going to say something? <laughs> yes, he would too. <laughs> Eight o'clock? Okay. He knew, that his friends knew that Job was in so much grief and so much pain, covered with sores, they didn't recognize him. And when by the time they got to where he was, they knew that he was going to die. They, there, was no, there was no room left in their imagination. There was no hope that this man was going to survive the physical condition that, he, that he's in. Here he is, Job, the great man from the land of Uz, who owns the cattle and the flocks and the herds with all the children and the great wealth and the great reputation. And here is this man covered in sores from top to bottom, and he's sitting in an ash heap with broken pieces of pottery gouging at himself. A pottery field is a place of refuse. It's where you throw your garbage. It's a dung heap. It's where you throw, it's like a garbage, a garbage pile. He, here he is, this great man sitting on a garbage pile, scraping himself. Nobody's going to want to get near him. What if those boils and sores are contagious? Why does he have those? All these people that used to look up at him and go, oh, there goes Job. Hey, Job. Job, just look my way. Give me, just, just give me a nod, Job. Job spoke to me today. A man that had that kind of reputation, that had that kind of charisma, that man is now at the garbage heap scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery and people are looking, stay away from me, Job. Don't get near me, Job. Wonder what he did. Surely that would not happen to a person who didn't do something to deserve it. I heard he lost everything. I wonder if there's another woman involved. All these questions and all these suspicions, I think... What hurt Job as much as the sores and as much as the loss of his wealth and his children was the stares and the assumptions of the people around him. And these guys loved him enough to come and sit with him for seven days in silence. 
But you know, just because the mouth is closed doesn't mean the mind's not working. In those seven days, I wonder if they had thoughts like, well, if it can happen to Job, it can happen to any of us. So I wonder what Job did to deserve this. Because this wouldn't happen to someone if they didn't deserve it. They had already worked out, I think, their theological response to Job while they were sitting on the ash heap with him. Their assumptions, drawing conclusions based on no facts, trying to take the place of God in the life of Job. They've stopped grieving with him and they've started judging him and sentencing him with their mouths closed. Job knew their stares. I think Job's response in the third chapter, I think he breaks the silence because he can't handle the condemning stares anymore. Have you ever had someone stare at you? Seriously, I wonder what she did to make him leave. I wonder, I wonder what's going on when no, all these terrible accusatory stares and whispers that you can hear. But Job opens up his mouth and he asks three questions. The first question that he asks is, why was I born? The second question that he asks is, okay, I was born, so why didn't I die as soon as I was born? And the third question that he asks is, I was born, I didn't die right after I was born, so why can't I die right now? I'm sitting on this ash heap, scraping myself with broken pieces of pottery. I'm in great pain on every level. Why can't I just die now? My friends believe I'm going to die. Everybody around me believes I'm going to die. So why don't I just go ahead and die already? His first question, why was I born? Believe it or not, he's not the only one that's ever asked this question. Jeremiah asked it. I mean, Jeremiah had some terrible things happen to him, and he cries out to go, why was I ever even born? And Jeremiah goes so far as to say, God, you tricked me into this prophetic ministry. If I had known that this is what it was going to be like, I would have never said yes. He asked the same question in the season of pain and suffering with no real hope that there's going to be an end to that pain. These men asked the same question, why was I ever even born into this horrible existence that we call life? Now, when they asked the question, neither Job nor Jeremiah expected an answer. People ask that question, but they really don't expect an answer because somehow if we answered the question why, it would do two things. It would negate the feelings of pain and suffering that we're having. And number two, if we understood why, God would stop being God. There has to be that mysterious tension. There are times when God does things with no explanation. He doesn't give us an explanation, and we don't know why, and he's not going to tell us. Not in time, and maybe not even in eternity. So why was I born? Job was in pain on every level, and I think he asked the question, why was I born? Not to get an answer from his friends, but just to express the pain that he was feeling to those men that he considered to be his friends. There's going to be another young lady that's going to have a really traumatic situation. She's going to be basically born in captivity. Her mom and her dad are dead. She's being raised by an uncle. She's basically being forced into a contest to, to present herself before the king. She gets chosen. She's given everything. And then all of a sudden, this wicked man named Haman gets a vengeance out for Mordecai, her uncle, and decides that all the Jewish people are going to die, and that means she's going to die too. So it's like she gets, she has nothing, she's given everything, and now everything is threatened to be taken away from her. Esther, instead of saying, why was I ever even born, this woman turns it around, and in this moment of darkness, like a ray of light, she says, perhaps for such a time as this, I was born. Perhaps for this moment, I was born that I could make a difference. I think Esther is getting a little bit of a glimpse of truth and revelation. Our response should not be, why was, our, why was I born? Our response should be, I was born and maybe for such a time as this, maybe something in what I'm going through is going to bless another person. Maybe there's something, as long as I have breath in me, maybe there's something that God still wants to do to get glory and honor from my life. 
And who knows, but for such a time as this, such a time of suffering, such a time of horrible events, such a time of confusion and turmoil, and that's the world we live in, for such a time as this, perhaps I have been born that I can make a difference, that God can make a difference in and through my life. So lots of people have asked the question, why? Moses asked the question, why? In Exodus chapter 5, oh God, why? Have you put me in charge of these people? Oh God, why have you taken me before Pharaoh? Joshua asked that question. God, why? He falls to the ground and says, why? Why are we even here? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? Even Joshua asked that question. Gideon's going to ask that question. God, why? And then Jeremiah asked that question. So you can see through asking the question why is not wrong. And there are people who say you should never ask God why. I don't think that's true. I don't think there's anything wrong, anything sinful, anything immoral. It's honest. God, why? I don't understand. Because really, when we say God, why, all we're really saying is I hurt and I need you to touch. I need you to be present with me in this moment. So he says, why was I born? Then he says, why did I not die at birth? Okay, I was born, so why didn't I die at birth? I wonder if Job was born before the, um, born before the Exodus, obviously patriarchal um, time frame here for him. But I wonder if some of the men that didn't die under the sword of Pharaoh said, why wasn't I killed when Pharaoh had all the male children killed? I wonder if there were some guys during the time of Jesus when Herod had all the male children killed, I wonder if there were some of the guys that said, why, why wasn't I killed at that point in time? If you are here, there's a reason for it. If disease didn't get you, if abortion didn't get you, if the wars didn't get you, if all the accidents waiting out there didn't get you, you are here for a reason and there's a purpose for your existence. If you live to be 120, and I hope that you all do, but if you live to be 120, then there will be a purpose for every one of your days. But Job says, if I didn't die at birth, then why? Did, if, I didn't die, if I didn't die before I was born, why didn't I die at birth? And of course, again, he's not looking for an answer to that question. During this, this point, though, in the passage, he, begin to, he begins to describe his understanding of what death would be like. And th this is why he's thinking death is better than this. He says, in death, I can lay down and be quiet. Can you imagine him screaming and moaning in pain day and night, week after week, now month after month? He says, at least I can sleep. If he's sitting on an ash heap, scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery, this man's not getting eight hours of sleep a night. He says, if I could just die, then I could rest. He must be exhausted because of the pain. There's no Tylenol. There's no morphine. There's no hydrocodone. There's nothing like that. Nothing to help take the edge off his pain. He said, if I could die, I could be free from my burdens. There would be no slaves. There would be no masters. We would all be the same, and I would be free from these burdens that I carry. He says, there would be no prejudice. There would be no one looking at me saying he lost all his money because prince and pauper both are the same in the grave. And there's no difference between them. And he says there's no social ranking. There's no good. There's no important. There's no bad. There's no broke. There's no rich. This is Job's concept of the grave. I wanted to bring this out to you because by the time God's finished with him, his concept of death is totally different. And something happens in his suffering that changes the way he understands God. Can I tell you this? Some of the most traumatic and critical moments of our life can be some of the most formative moments in our life and can change the way that we believe and the way that we, that we think. Suffering does one of two things to people. It will draw them closer to God or it will push them farther away from God. But suffering leaves no one neutral. No one can go through suffering like this and come out on the other side of it and say, I am the same now that I was before it ever started. It changes you. And if you will allow it to, God will lift you up 
to a place that you've never been before and allow you to see things that you've never seen before and give you a place of revelation in him that you've never had before. Anyone who's gone through extreme suffering and they've held fast in Jesus, they come out on the other side and those people have a testimony and an understanding of the greatness and the majesty of God that can't come any other way. He says, the grave is such a comfortable place and such a good place. I have to tell you guys this story. Um, it happened years ago, no one that you would know, but Stuart and I were part of a prayer team and this lady who was very emotional, very sweet and very gentle, but very melancholy, came up to us and asked for prayer because she was so depressed. And she looked at me and she says, the grave seems like such a comfortable place and the coffin such a lovely place. Now, I'm about to rip into her, but my husband, who's sensitive, literally nudges me away, and he gets right in front of her and says, let me pray for you. I know you're hurting. And he prays for her. And I'm like, well, she needs me, 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 me. <laughs> and he told me, he said, when a person is in that place, and they're that desperate, and they're that low, death seems a much better option than life. But let me tell you, the grave is not where you belong. We were destined for life and not for death. There should be something inside of us that resists and rejects and fights against it with everything that was with it, that's within us because we were meant for life and not for death. Whether we're six months old or whether we're 99 years old, we were meant for life and not for death. And the gray, I, Stuart came home and he's like, well, you know, sometimes I get low and sometimes I think the grave looks like a comfortable place. And I put my hand on my hip and I did this with the neck. He knows I've got something to say when I do that. And I said, well, if you die, there's no Coca-Cola cake and there's no brisket and there's no enchiladas in the grave. And he says, hmm, maybe I don't want to go just yet. <laughs> my husband and his love for food. We're sitting in church on, on a Sunday morning when we were in Spartanburg, and the, the pastor's talking about how he's about to be speaking on Gary Smalley's book, The Five Languages of Love. And I lean over to Stuart because I know he's read the book, and I said, well, what is your love language? And he whispers back to me, food. <laughs> and I'm like, there should be six love languages then. <laughs> Finally, Job says, if I couldn't die before I was born, if I couldn't die at birth, then why can't I die now? Why can't I just lay down, be quiet, and be at peace now? Job's understanding of death is extremely primitive, but that's going to change drastically as he moves through this challenge with suffering. This great man is in the depths of despair, and in his most difficult moment, the worst part of him gets the microphone. Don't you hate that? When the worst, most negative part of you gets that microphone or gets that, mo that moment to voice itself. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. Anybody ever been interested in the Titanic and that whole element of the ship going down and stuff? One of the theories with the Titanic is that it ran into the iceberg because every century or so, those huge icebergs will break off at the base and flip. And when the iceberg flips, what's on top is all the muck and the mire of the ocean. And it takes rains and winds to clean it off. And so there's a theory that that iceberg had just flipped. And what was on top was all the muck and the mire of the bottom. And it had not had the rain and the wind to cleanse it. So think about this. Aren't there moments in your life where the worst part of you flips up to surface? Even if, it's, oh, even if it's for just a moment. And that's what's happening to Job. The worst moment of his life. And he's flipped that, that negative part of him. That grieving part of him. That blind, raging, primordial part of him that only knows pain gets flipped up and somebody hands it a microphone. And it's recorded in the pages of scripture for us to dissect criticize, think about, should have done this, he should have done that. But I tell you, when it's all said and done, there's not a one of us in this room that's any different from Job. When we hurt, the pain is real. We say things we don't mean, we think things that are ridiculous. 
So the next time you're with someone who's suffering, listen with your heart, not with your ears. Listen with the spirit and not with the natural flesh. Don't assume that you know why they're going through what they're going through. Because I tell you, whether you're in pain because you sinned, whether you're in pain because somebody else sinned, whether you're in pain and you don't even know why, it all hurts the same. And we've all known all of those pains. We know what it's like to face the consequences of our choices and decisions. We know what it's like to hurt because of someone else's choices and decisions. And we know what it's like to be in pain and we don't know why. And one of the first things when we're in pain, one of the first things, prolonged pain, one of the first things that we want to do is to find someone to blame, even if it's ourselves. But ultimately, while we are in this world, we are going to have tribulation. We're going to know suffering. Suffering should not move us away from Jesus. We ought to learn from Job. And in moments of grief and moments of suffering, we ought to hold ourselves together in Jesus and be strong. The grave may look or appear comfortable and pleasing for the moment, but the grave is not where you belong because you have breath in you. So as you leave this place tonight, I want you to think about that the next time you're with someone that's hurting and the next time that you hurt. Listen with your heart and not with your ears. And sometimes the best thing that you can do for someone that's hurting is just be there, keep your mouth shut. Heavenly Father, give us grace. More and more and more grace. When we deal with people and when we ourselves are faced with events that would crush the very life out of us, would you cause us to take a breath, hold ourselves together in you, and just be there. Father, we don't understand why. And even if, we, even if you told us why, we probably still wouldn't understand it. And it's all okay. Because more than anything, what we need is you. I ask you to bless and protect each of these dear saints, Lord God. Watch over them as they go home. Hold them safe and keep them together in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.